Malachi beginning at chapter 2 verse 17 and we will read through chapter 3 verse 4. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, till they present right offerings to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Malachi is the last prophet to prophesy in the Old Testament era. You remember Haggai and Zechariah preached at the time of the rebuilding of the temple after the exile into Babylon. Well, now the temple has been standing for some decades as Malachi gives his prophecy. And in fact, according to chapter 1, verse 13, the people have grown weary with the worship already after just such a short time. Not only that, they have settled into their culture. They are divorcing, intermarrying with unbelievers, withholding their tithes, oppressing the poor, all of which are told in Nehemiah. And therefore, the date of this prophecy is in all likelihood about 450 B.C., the last of the inspired spokesmen of the Old Testament. The relationship between Malachi's day And our day is remarkable, the parallels. It was a day of waiting, primarily, a day when a promise had been given but hadn't been fulfilled. You remember Haggai had said that the temple would be greater than in its former glory, that the nation would bring all of its treasures and they would fill the temple, God would meet them, and it would be a beautiful time in Israel. Take courage, you build more than you see, he said. Zechariah had said their king would come. New foundation, new fountain would be built. Spirit of prayer would descend on the people for repentance. Many nations would join the Lord and God would be in their midst. And now the decades have passed. No show. And the hope that fires a people for purity, for taking risks, for venturing great things with God, was faded. It was gone. Just like many today sense that hope fades because the Lord keeps postponing his return and doesn't show. And the great temptation for Israel... (coughs) In the Old Testament, just like for the church today, 
is to forget that we are pilgrims, not natives. The temptation is to forget that we are aliens, exiles, strangers, sojourners. According to Hebrews, we are seeking another homeland, desiring and yearning for a better country than this world can offer anywhere. So the great threat to the church in America is not that we are tossed here and there and buffeted and made homeless and persecuted. The great threat to the church in America is that we are at home. We have let the Lord's delay put us to sleep. No sense of urgency. No earnest expectation. No heart-wrenching cry. Come, Lord Jesus. Hasten the day. No passionate Mission strategy to penetrate those frontiers not yet reached, which must be reached before he comes. And inevitably, when the zeal for the Spirit of God and the expectation of the coming of the Lord in power fades, so does the power for purity. Master God is replaced by Master Mammon and Master Sex. And we'll see those two sins in this book of Malachi. But we don't want it to be that way at Bethlehem. You don't want it to be that way. I have been so encouraged recently because many of you are sensing... A touch from God to go to prayer and pray with me in the secret of your closet like this. God, forgive us for our complacency toward the lost. Forgive us for the smallness of our vision. Forgive us for the weakness of our spiritual lives. Move, O God, touch us with light and fire at Bethlehem. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Grant us, Lord, to know the thrill of dying to sin, that we might live to righteousness. Grant us to know that sore of spirit, which comes from decreasing that Christ might increase and God might be all in all. I know some of you have begun to pray that way. I see the fruit of it. And I hear the stories of it. Give us, O oh God, an encounter with the living Lord that is so evidencing that it banishes all doubt and puts in its place mighty commitment, unbending boldness in mission, both at work and around the world. And I believe that we need help. If there's going to be a breakthrough like that at Bethlehem in 83, like there has begun to be in 82. And Malachi gives us help here. So I want to look at his message for his day and ours. Now, I've not forgotten that it's a Christmas message that Malachi has. And so here in one sentence is the message. And then we'll try to unfold it. Malachi's message to us today is that the purpose of Christmas 
is to purify a priestly people who live and leap for the glory of the name of the Lord. I'll say it again so that you can see it as we unfold it. The purpose of Christmas is to purify a priestly people who live and leap for the glory of the name of the Lord. Now, there are four questions I want to ask to unpack that. One, does Malachi, this 450 B.C. prophet, really have Christmas in view? Two, is the meaning of Christmas to purify a priestly people? Three, what does he want to purify us of? And four, what's the essence of Christmas purity? Okay, number one. Is Christmas really in view in this ancient prophet? The answer is yes and no. No, in the sense that Malachi was not given the details to understand that with the coming of this messenger that he foresaw, Messiah, there would be a split so that in the first coming he would give ransom for our sins in all lowliness and in the second coming he would come in mighty power to judge Malachi did not see that gap he predicts it all as one great day of the Lord Peter explained it like this he said in his first letter chapter 1 that the prophets of old saw the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories but when they inquired into the times It was made known to them they were serving another generation, not their own. And they had to be content simply to paint with very broad strokes and leave it to history to fill in the details. But the broad strokes are true and the broad strokes in Malachi include Christmas. Let's look at this text that Greg read, chapter 2, verse 17. This first verse here, 17 in the text describes what the problem with the people was. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, the situation there in Jerusalem in Malachi's day is that God has postponed his coming so long to the temple that they have basically begun to act as if being evil and being good don't make any difference. Where is the God of justice? It doesn't matter. He's not showing, so he's not real. Now, notice Malachi's response in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. I think that's sheer irony. In whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, who are the people in this verse? I see three people. We need to try to identify who they are and see what the fulfillment was if perchance Christmas is in view here. First, in the first line of the verse, the messenger is to prepare the way of God. So there's a messenger. I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. Second, God himself is in the verse. It's God whose way is being prepared. Me. And that phrase, the Lord whom you seek, 
no doubt refers back to the seeking of verse 17, where they say, where is the God of justice? And the third person in view here, or it seems to be a third person, is the messenger of the covenant. And yet, on the one hand, that messenger of the covenant seems to be identical with the Lord who comes to his temple. And on the other hand, it seems to be a distinct person because the Lord refers to him in the third person when he says, He is coming, says the Lord. Seems distinct and seems the same. Well, let's try to identify these in turn. Who is this first person, the way preparer? According to chapter 4, verse 5 of Malachi, it's Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, we go over to the New Testament and we know who that was. You know the New Testament well enough. Luke chapter 1, verse 16 The angel comes to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and he says, John will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will turn many of the hearts of the fathers to the children. In other words, the angel identifies John the Baptist with the messenger of Malachi 4 5. Now, Jesus goes a step further and identifies John with the messenger of 3.1, which confirms our connection of Malachi 3.1 and 4.5. Because Jesus says in Matthew 11.10, This is he, speaking of John, of whom it is written, and then he quotes Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. So he explicitly relates Malachi 3.1 to John the Baptist. And then, to finish the circle, in Matthew 17.12, Jesus says that John is the Elijah to come. He says, I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of them. Then their disciples, his disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So, the fulfillment of the messenger in 3.1 and the Elijah of 4.5 is John the Baptist, according to the witness of the angel and the witness of Jesus. Now, we know that John the Baptist came as the forerunner of Messiah. He says in John 3:28, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. And Jesus himself then claimed to be that Messiah whom John had preceded. In one of the very clearly authentic texts of the Gospels in Matthew 11:3, John sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the one who is to come or shall we wait for another? And Jesus, in a veiled way, but I think very clear, says, Tell John to look at the signs around me and not to take offense at me. And I think what he meant by that was this. Yes, 
John, I am the Messiah. But, John, I know things aren't coming to fulfillment exactly the way you read Malachi. You can't understand, John, that there is a coming in lowliness for the atonement for sin and a coming in exalted glory for judgment at the end. That's a mystery that I'm now revealing. But, John, I am he. Don't take offense at my lowliness. That's the meaning, I think, of Matthew 11, 3 through 6. So Jesus claims to be the one whose way John is preparing, which puts him in Malachi 3, 1 and puts Christmas in Malachi 3, 1. Now, what about that problem of the seeming identity between the Lord who comes to his temple and the messenger of the covenant? The Lord, it clearly seems to be God. He's the one that was being sought in 2.17. The Lord whom you seek. The messenger of the covenant would be the Messiah. My own conviction is that this sort of thing happens in the Old Testament because of the mystery of the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as Isaiah put it in the Old Testament, For unto us a child is born, and His name shall be called Mighty God. And that mystery of the Godhood of the Messiah accounts for numerous places in the prophets where it goes out of and into, I will do this, says the Lord, he will do this, says the Lord. As if the two are almost interchangeable. So, in answer to the first question, is Christmas in Malachi? Yes. Malachi prophesied the coming of the forerunner and the messenger of the covenant, whom John the Baptist and Jesus claimed to fulfill, To be sure, the prophecy is given in a kind of telescoped fashion where the second coming and the first coming are not distinguished clearly, but painted with one broad stroke. And that means that the prophecy began to be fulfilled at the first Christmas and will be completed at the second coming. And we stand smack dab in the middle of chapter 3 because we stand between the first and the second coming of the Savior. Second question, is the purpose of Christmas in Malachi 3 to purify a priestly people? Let's read the rest of the text, verses 2 through 4. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Let me stop there. I didn't know what fuller's soap was when I read this. And so I had to check that out. And uh, to full cloth means to shrink it down and fluff it up. And a fuller is one who does that. And fuller soap is the alkali used to clean it and make it white. Okay? The Messiah is going to come like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver 
till they present right offerings to the Lord. At the end of this age, Christ is coming back. And at that point, his bride will have every last vestige of defilement wiped away. The church will be totally pure when Jesus comes. But this this act of purification has begun with the coming of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. When Christ made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the mighty. Titus 2.14 Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. In other words, Christ came to make us clean. The meaning of Christmas is purity. 1 John 3.8 puts it like this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil which in context means my sin. And not only did Christmas happen in order that I might be exonerated from the punishment of my sin, but that I might have the power not to sin anymore. That's the basic meaning of Christmas in Malachi 3. Christ came at Christmas. You've seen the little track, the bridge. Christ came at Christmas to build a bridge from us sinful men To eternal life. But the name of that bridge is purity. Or sanctification. No one gets from here in sin to eternal life without walking the bridge of progressive sanctification. Here's the way Paul put that. Romans 6.22 Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. No one crosses the chasm of sin to the holy city except on the bridge of sanctification. Christmas came to build a bridge of purity in our hearts to God. Now, notice in chapter 3 that it began with the sons of Levi. Verse 3. That does not mean that the the, uh, people of God outside the priestly uh, family are a matter of indifference to God, as if he didn't care whether they got pure. It means that judgment always begins from the house of God. It always starts from the temple and moves out. If you can get the Levites clean, the people will get clean. And if the Levites are filthy with sin, the people will never get to God. I think there's another truth here, though, besides that one, that you move out from the priestly caste to the people. The truth is this. You remember back in Exodus 19.6 where God said to the people that the whole people of Israel are a kingdom of priests. And Peter picked up on that in the New Testament and in his first letter, chapter 2, twice said, the church is a holy priesthood or a royal priesthood. Which means that all God's people are sons of Levi. And therefore the purification promised in Malachi 3.3 is a purification for the whole people 
a holy priesthood. So, in answer to the second question, the purpose of Christmas, according to Malachi 3, is to purify a priestly people for himself, for God. Question 3, what does he want to purify us from? Well, the answer, of course, is sin. That's what everybody would say. But we we hear that big broadside of sin so much that it sort of hits us and doesn't get inside. And we have to divide it up into little arrows if it's going to get in. And that's what Malachi does, very discomforting arrows. And there are two of them that come in for special treatment in Malachi, namely marital unfaithfulness and the love of money. Now, I want to look at those. Christmas, according to Malachi, has to do with your marriage. And here I'm talking about married people and people who might someday get married. Christ came at Christmas to keep your marriage pure and to give you power to stay married. And keep your marriage vows as long as you live. But in Malachi's day, just like today, something strange had happened to, to God's people. God's people, seeing the Lord delay, surrounded by a pagan culture, began to settle in. And they simply absorbed into their minds and hearts the morality and the attitude of their culture especially with regard to divorce and marrying unbelievers. Look at chapter 2, verse 14, and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Chapter 2, verse 14, the people ask why God is disregarding their offerings, and God answers, because the Lord was a witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth. Now stop there a minute. That means... God was there when you took your vows and made covenant till death do us part. And that's the way every Christian should get married. Before God, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then skip to the bottom of verse 15. So take heed to yourselves. Let none be faithless to the wife of his youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now all of you focus on me. I can handle any disturbances, but you're turning away, okay? Look at me. Don't look at anybody else. Because I can't talk to you if you look away. Don't worry about anything else. Getting quiet. The purpose of Christmas is to purify marriages. To keep us from the sin of divorce. And yes, I think that means there is forgiveness for the sin of divorce if that stains your past. But the main thing I want to emphasize this morning is the power given by Christmas to stay married and make it good. The good news is that Christmas can keep us from divorce. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to make himself available to families. If you have the awful notion that somehow Christ and religion are over here, and my family and all my problems are over here, and there's a big wall between the two, you don't know the Christ of Christmas. He broke into the nittiest of grittiest in order that we might know he is part of our family. He's by our bed. He's at our table. He's on the threshold. He is part of us. Jesus Christ came into the world to make himself available to your family. Every divorce that involves Christians is owing to a breakdown in the couple's orientation on Christ. I'll say that again because I know it's an absolute statement, but I believe it's true. Every divorce that involves Christians is owing to a breakdown in their orientation on Christ. It's a vertical problem, fundamentally. And some of you are asking for divorce in your lives because you neglect the cultivation of that spiritual communion, that triangle of spirituality between husband, wife, and Christ. You avoid it like the plague because every time you start to talk to her about it, you feel so uncomfortable. Or if she broaches the subject, it feels so terrible. And so year after year goes on and Christ is shelved. Worship becomes a formality. Going to church is a sheer ritual because the whole thing's a hoax at home. I had a guy come into my office a couple weeks ago from another church who's on the brink of divorce, a friend of mine for eight years. And uh, I said, how, how has the prayer life been over the past years? And he said, we haven't prayed together for six years. I got so angry. And I have heard that story again and again. I heard it from a seminary professor who said he didn't have devotions with his wife for 15 years. And they got a divorce. And they wonder what happened. Listen, men. And I'm addressing the men especially because I don't think it's primarily a wife's responsibility to take her husband by the hand and draw him down to his knees so that they can pray and have spiritual communion. It is fundamentally the man's responsibility to gather his wife to his side, seek the Lord as a fellow heir of grace and call down mercy that their marriage will work. Men, you've got to do that. If you've never done it before... Christmas is the time to start. And here's a very practical suggestion. This afternoon or tomorrow. Take five minutes. Doesn't take more than five. The Lord might lead you to take more. Get alone and say to God, God, I want to make my family spiritual. Would you show me this year a, a, a thing or two I could do to make our celebration of Christmas Friday night and Saturday Christ-centered. Help me to do it, not just leave it up to, to Noel. Now do it, guys. It'll make all the difference in your world. The Messiah is called the messenger of the covenant. 
the covenant. That's just a few verses after he talked about marriage covenant. And I can't help but hear an echo, which probably means something like this. Husbands and wives, bend all your effort to keep clear and pure the covenant relationship with Jesus. And if you do, the covenant relationship with each other will endure. Top priority. Marriage or Christmas has to do with your marriage. And it has to do with your money. That's the second thing Matthew um, Malachi refers to here. The purpose of Christmas is to purify us from the love of money. The impurity of greed had utterly gripped Jerusalem. It is amazing what you read about the love of money in this book. They had refused to tithe and they were bringing blind goats to the sacrifices. Ones with broken legs and mange because they want to get rid of them. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing thee? In your tithes and offerings you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. But not only were they refusing to give at least a tithe, but what they brought was shoddy. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. When you offer a blind animal in sacrifice, is that no evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick... Is that no evil? Present that to your governor. Will he be pleased? Will he show you a favor? Why do people bring blind goats to the house of God? Two reasons. One, they love the pleasures and comforts that money can buy more than they love the advancement of the gospel. And two, they believe that if they keep for themselves their possessions and their ties, they'll be able to carve out for themselves a better future than if they trusted the sovereign grace of God and obeyed Him. To, to put it in a word, their love was set on the world... And their faith was set on themselves. And the purpose of Christmas is to purify us from that kind of idolatry. Which leads to the final question, briefly. What is the essence of Christmas purity? What is it at root? Sure, we can see all these sins, but at, at root, what's the essence of Christmas purity? There's a great theme in this book that I want to close with. Christmas purity is not primarily getting rid of sins. It is getting righteousness. It is positive. Christ never, never takes anything away from his children which he does not restore a hundredfold. 
in one way or the other. Dennis Smith said to me yesterday at the pastor's prayer and study group a sentence that is just great. He said, If you lose your wallet on the way to collect a million dollars, you don't get angry. And that's a great sentence. Every sin that you forsake for Christ is restored a million fold with deeper, more solid, more permanent joys, both now and in the age to come. The aim of God at Christmas is to make the goodies of the world pale in attractiveness, lose all their force at Christmas as we look to the glory of the name of the majestic God. The essence of Christmas purity is not what you stand against. It is what you stand in awe of. The name of God. So let me show you in Malachi that royal thread. Malachi 1.11 From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, says the Lord, is great among the nations. And in every place incense is to be offered to me, to my name. And a pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Drop down to verse 14 at the end. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Skip over to chapter 2, verse 5. God gave life and peace to Levi, and he feared me and stood in awe of my name. Chapter 3, verse 16, there will be a book of remembrance written for those who feared the Lord and thought on or esteemed his name. The purpose of Christmas, therefore, to sum it up, is to purify a priestly people who live for the glory of the name of God. But I left out one word, right? And with that word I close. Not only to live, but to leap. Chapter 4, verse 2. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth leaping like calves from the stall. Bethlehem leaping. I can see it. Someday, when you open your eyes to the glory of the name of God Almighty and set your love on Him above all else, you will come forth leaping like calves out of the stall with freedom. Freedom from the love of money. Who cares? We can't take it. Freedom from marital unfaithfulness. Humble yourselves and say you're sorry. Freedom. To lift up these hands in praise to the Lord any time in any service. Freedom to discover the thrill of godliness and love. Freedom to know the soaring of soul that comes from decreasing. That Christ might increase and that God might be all in all. Let us pray. Oh, Christ, how we long for you to break loose upon Bethlehem. To make us leap like calves coming out of the stall.
free, not self-conscious, free from the love of money, free from pride that ruins marriages. Almighty God, touch this people even as I pray and make us new.